Well, folks, here we are again, an even bigger mess of confusion and chaos than in 2000 or 2016. The election isn't over yet and could still go either way, but it speaks volumes that it's this close at all and that millions of people with sincere illusions in the Democratic Party find themselves yet again on the precipice of deep despair. That America will never be a socialist country. 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 Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Socialist Revolution podcast. My name is John Peterson. I'm the editor of Socialist Revolution magazine, the official publication of the U.S. section of the International Marxist Tendency. You can check out our website at socialistrevolution.org. Each episode, we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective, featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. For weeks, the pollsters and strategists told us that this election would not be a repeat of 2016. And yet, in most states, the polls were widely off the mark yet again. So how did things come to this? If Trump does pull off another upset, how can we explain it? As we've pointed out time and time again, this right here is what you get when you base your entire approach on the so-called lesser evil strategy or the safe state strategy. If you limit your choices to voting for one or another evil, you're guaranteed that sooner or later, the greater evil is going to win again. And after 2016 and after last night, it's not even clear which of these two rotten parties American workers believe is the greater or lesser evil. Shamefully, huge swaths of the left caved to the pressure of this lesser evilism, pointing to the alleged imminence of fascism. Now, depending on how things play out, we may or may not have to wait four more years for Trump or for someone even worse than Trump to get back into office. Because Trump 2.0, or whoever follows him, would be even worse than the first time around. Now, if Trump does win a second term, we have to remember that a new presidential term is not merely a continuation. Presidential term limits mean that there would be no more re-election worries. It's an opportunity to reset, reshuffle, and reprioritize. And you can be sure that his priorities will not benefit the broader working class and that he and his base will be even more arrogant and emboldened than before. In any case, the uncertainty is likely to continue for at least a few more hours, if not a few more days. This is precisely the chaotic situation that Donald J. Trump thrives in. He's made a career out of betting that he'll come out on top of a wild scramble for position, that his opponents will be so shocked and disoriented that they'll be knocked out of contention. Now, after appearing a bit more somber than usual on election day, he had the spring back in his step by later in the evening. He obviously thought that he might have pulled it off, but he also wants to hedge his bets because he wants to be able to claim fraud and cheating if he doesn't win in the end. If need be, he'll unleash a constitutional crisis, demand a recount, and drag the process through the mud of the courts as long as possible, no matter what the consequences for the system as a whole. By preemptively declaring victory, he further undermined confidence in the fundamental institutions of bourgeois democracy. And remember, he said just hours earlier explicitly that he would do no such thing. 
Now, Trump ended last night with a lead in several important states, but there were over 20 million ballots remaining to be counted, and many of these appeared to be from counties that were likely to lean Democrat. This is why Trump wanted to stop the, the vote counting. He was claiming that people were still voting past poll closing time and that a gigantic swindle was underway. Now, Trump treats the presidency like a reality game show, starring Donald J. Trump and his family, never mind that millions and even billions of lives are at stake. Now, Trump isn't interested in the peaceful carrying out of the so-called democratic process. He and those around him are interested in winning at any cost. Now, if Biden wins in the end, it'll be seen by millions as an illegitimate victory. Although many will give him something of a honeymoon, his government is going to be under attack and in deep crisis from the very beginning. Now, the fundamental explanation for this mess is the lack of class politics in a country where the working class is under extreme pressure and polarized along incredibly distorted lines. Without a class-independent political party, without a class-independent lead by the labor leaders, the working class is mere fodder for division and exploitation. One layer of the class is played off against another, white against black, native-born against immigrants, coastal versus flyover states, north versus south, urban against suburban, against rural, or baby boomers against millennials and Gen Z. But the fundamental dividing line in society is none of these things. It's class. There are those who exploit and oppress and those who are exploited and oppressed. A tiny minority exploits the vast majority. And to maintain their rule, they have to do anything and everything to keep attention focused elsewhere and not on them. Now, Trump is a demagogue and a liar, but he has guts and he stands up to the liberal establishment and millions of small business owners and ordinary workers love him for it. Despite being the sitting president, despite presiding over the greatest combined catastrophe the country has ever faced, he was able to paint Biden as a lifelong politician and Washington insider, as an enemy of black people and the favored choice of Wall Street. And he wasn't wrong. Biden spent decades in Washington. He backed Bill Clinton's crime and welfare reform bills and chose California's former top cop as his running mate. So why vote for an allegedly kinder, gentler right-wing party when you can just vote directly for an open reactionary who's proud of it? Or why bother voting at all? There's also another myth about these campaigns, the idea that uh, small donors are the backbone. But the reality is that enormous amounts of corporate money go into these campaigns. In fact, an incredible $14 billion was spent on the presidential elections this cycle. That's more than the last two elections combined. And Democrats outspent Republicans by nearly double. Now, the billionaires invested billions of their own money in these elections, and small donations actually accounted for less than a quarter of the total contributions. So if you follow the money, you know exactly who stands to win as a result of these campaigns. Now, the Democrats thought that facts, reason, and science would be enough to prevail. In fact, they thought it would be a blowout for Biden. But they forgot the small detail that after decades of lies and betrayals, millions of workers no longer believe a word these people say. Science can't compete with good old common sense, which tells pragmatic Americans that the virus will just have to run its course, even if a few hundred thousand more people have to die. Now, from their perspective, that's just the way it is. Life is hard. Get used to it. 
As for who's to blame for the uncontrolled nature of the pandemic and the economic disaster, millions of people in the U.S. actually take Trump at his word that China is to blame for the virus, that scientists and liberals ruin the economy, that hordes of rampaging socialists will impose a Stalinist tyranny if Joe Biden is elected. Now, Trump, they, they might, you know, they'll agree. Trump may be a racist, sexist asshole, but a lot of people see him as their racist, sexist asshole. And there's another thing. We should never, never overestimate the Democrats or underestimate the class anger felt by millions of workers against that party, which took them for granted for generations. Union workers put decades of energy and billions of dollars into the Democratic Party. And for what? Lower real wages and a steep fall in manufacturing jobs and union membership. Instead of class struggle and class independence, the labor leaders have been preaching partnership with the bosses for decades. So instead of fighting the capitalists tooth and nail, their mantra has been that what is good for the boss is good for the worker. So why should it come as a surprise that large numbers of workers, of union voters, ended up voting for the capitalist party that made the question of jobs and keeping the economy open a central campaign issue? The blame for these divisions in the working class must be placed squarely at the feet of the labor leaders. Biden made a big push to reclaim union voters who had voted for Trump in 2016. But according to exit polls, just to give one example, in the Rust Belt state of Ohio, union voters went for Trump over Biden 56 to 42 percent. And yet there's still people on the left who insist that the Democrats are a worker-friendly party and that socialists should use their ballot line. Needless to say, their so-called strategy is in tatters. No matter who wins, it's clear that millions of workers understand that the Democratic Party is no friend of the working class. In fact, some Republican Party officials are now claiming that they are a working class party. Of course, neither party represents the workers, but the different wings of the capitalist class can't scrape together enough votes to win without building coalitions that lean cynically on this or that layer of the workers. So once again, Donald Trump, the New York City two-bit billionaire, was better able to tap into the fears alienation and frustration, not only of enraged small business owners, but of a significantly large layer of the working class. According to exit polls, he even won an estimated 10% of the black vote in Georgia. So the Democrats were able to bring a lot more people to the polls this time around than last time, but so were the Republicans. Roughly 45% of eligible voters did not bother voting in 2016, so there's a lot of people that both parties could tap into. But even with record turnout this year of 65% or more, millions still didn't bother to vote, not to mention the tens of millions of people who are disenfranchised altogether. Now, the working class had no candidate in these elections. George Floyd and Breonna Taylor had no candidate. The countless survivors of sexual assault had no candidate. The youth who will inherit the climate catastrophe have no candidate. One of these pro-capitalist politicians is going to win. It looks like it's probably going to be Joe Biden in the end. But the working class as a whole is going to lose. Now, even with the stakes as high as they were, with the pandemic raging and the, the economy in, in the dumps, millions of ordinary people still could feel in their bones that they had no horse in this race and there was no point in voting. And among those who did vote for Biden, it was reported in exit polls that over a third of them said that they were only doing so half-heartedly, that it was more a vote against Trump than a vote for Biden. As for Trump, he was able to rally his hardcore supporters and they voted for Trump as much as they voted against Biden. So there's also 
the small detail that if Trump were to win, Biden will have won the popular vote, just as Al Gore and Hillary Clinton did before him. But the popular vote doesn't matter a single iota because this is an inherently undemocratic system. It's perfectly and carefully calibrated to ensure stability for the ruling class while keeping the masses in check. By nature, it's designed to be in a constant impasse so that the party in power can use the excuse that this or that policy can't be implemented because the other party won't allow it. But eventually, even the most finely tuned machine breaks down, especially a chaotic system with so many living variables, contradictory interests, and moving parts. Remember, this setup was designed for the conditions of two and a half centuries ago, and it's now bursting at the seams. The fact is, for all the talk of democracy in this country, U.S. citizens have no constitutional right to elect the highest office in the land. This goes back to the country's founding, a time when slaves were counted as three-fifths of a human being in the census. So what is actually elected on election day is not the president, but the so-called electoral college. Votes to this body are allocated based on how many senators and representatives each state has. But since every state automatically gets two senators and a minimum of one congressperson, this skews the balance towards smaller, rural, and more conservative states. Never mind that 75 to 80 percent of the population lives in urban areas, depending on how you measure it. So even though that may appear small, these margins can be decided. To take an example, uh, the state of North Dakota and the state of California both have two senators and the corresponding electoral votes, even though California's population is 50 times larger. So that way overrepresents the people of North Dakota, with all due respect to North Dakotans. Uh, and in all states except Maine or Nebraska, there's a winner-take-all system when it comes to the electoral votes. So in 2016, Trump won the massive state of Florida by just 100,000 or so votes, yet he claimed all 29 electoral electoral votes. In 2000, George W. Bush won all of Florida's electoral votes and the presidency with just a lead of 525 popular votes in the state of Florida. So although Trump received 3 million fewer votes, uh, popular votes than Hillary Clinton in the last election, just 77,000 votes across three states in the upper Midwest handed him the electoral college and as a result, the keys to the White House. Now, because of this, the so-called battleground states or swing states take far greater precedence when it comes to campaigning, since all that matters are the 270 electoral votes that are required for victory. Many states are all but guaranteed to vote for one party or another. So it doesn't matter if you voted for Trump in New York or for Biden in Mississippi, your vote will have zero effect on the outcome. This means that the 80% of the population living in non-battleground states are often simply taken for granted. This blew up in Hillary Clinton's place in 2016. She didn't visit the state of Wisconsin even once since she was so confident that those votes were in the bag and she ended up losing there. So little wonder with this setup that a majority of Americans support abolishing the Electoral College outright. And yet all of this is considered perfectly normal and legitimate by liberal and conservative politicians and pundits alike. Now, in all their wisdom, the framers of the U.S. Constitution decided on an even number of electors, which opens the possibility of a tie in the Electoral College. If this were to occur, the House of Representatives would elect the president on the basis of one vote per state delegation. This makes an even greater mockery of the concept of democracy, as California would receive one vote for its delegation of 53 representatives, while South Dakota would also receive one vote for its single representative. 
alternative. As things currently stand in 2020, if it goes to the House, it would definitely favor Donald Trump. Then there's the Supreme Court, which could well be called upon to weigh in on these elections and potentially tip the balance as it did in the fiasco between Al Gore and George W. Bush in the 2000 election. Now, for years, Chief Justice John Roberts has tried to play a balancing act, a careful act, using the court's power to exert political influence without appearing to do so. But this charade will be a lot harder to pull off now that the court has been packed with conservative interpreters of the Constitution, all of them appointed for life. It's worth noting that Justices Roberts, Kavanaugh, and the recently appointed Amy Coney Barrett were all involved in Bush's campaign in the year 2000. Now, the fact that there's so-called liberal and conservative justice at all exposes this unelected body's deeply political nature. Now, they, they would have us believe that the highest court in the land floats above the rest of the state and class society. Nothing could be further from the truth. Like the far from innocuous British monarchy, the Supreme Court is a crucial bulwark of bourgeois rule. It was once a dependably stabilizing factor, but it too is being transformed into a destabilizing factor of the highest order as people lose even more confidence in the so-called impartiality of the law. And finally, if voting is such a sacred act, why does it take place on a Tuesday in the middle of a workday? Some people have referred to all of this as misrepresentative democracy, but it is actually precisely what it has always been, bourgeois democracy, a system designed to defend the interests of a tiny propertied minority over the interests of the majority. So it's absolutely true that U.S. politics has moved far to the right in the last period, further and further to the right each electoral cycle. But that's not the same as saying that the working class as a whole has moved to the right, and the overwhelming majority of the youth certainly haven't moved to the right. Now, if Trump wins, the Democrats will have zero right to call themselves the champions of ordinary people. They, they would show themselves unable to defeat a criminal clown during an economic meltdown and pandemic. The utter rottenness of the Democrats would be exposed once and for all, and the need for a total and immediate break would be apparent to millions of people. But even if Biden wins, uh, they still have absolutely no right to pretend to rep represent the interests of the working majority. Biden's mission and Kamala Harris's mission together will be to reestablish the stability and credibility of the system's institutions while preparing the way for the next generation of democratic defenders of capitalism. Remember, this is a capitalist party. Nancy Pelosi made that very, very clear. Let's not forget that even Bernie Sanders' milquetoast reforms were seen as too radical by the party tops and the DNC. As we all know, after Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, socialism was put front and center in U.S. politics. Millions of people now have a favorable view of socialism, and they say they would vote for a socialist candidate. But once Sanders was sidelined yet again this spring, the Democrats tacked, predictably, even further to the right and tried to distance themselves from anything remotely having to do with socialism. Trump played on the fears and suspicions of the Cold War, which continued to haunt a layer of the older working class. And in places like Miami, with its large Cuban-American and Venezuelan-American population, he seized on this and cynically painted the Democrats as rabid Stalinists and violent anarchists. As for Biden... 
he made it abundantly clear that he's not a socialist, precisely at a time when millions of people say they would vote for a socialist and they're not interested in yet another status quo politician. So it's entirely accurate to say that many Democrats, the so-called moderates, are scared of socialism. Biden and the DNC placed their bets on winning the so-called middle ground, the center, without realizing that the center has been hollowed out by decades of crisis and polarization. This explains the rising interest in socialism and communism, as well as the rise of a more vocal and visible extreme right wing. So the fact is, far from discrediting the idea that socialists can run and win in this country, the results of last night show that the Democratic Party is not a socialist party, never has been and never will be, despite a lot of people continuing to say that they are, including Donald Trump. Uh, now, those on the left who think that you can wish this party into being a socialist party or that you can avoid the hard work of building something new outside the two-party system are deluding themselves and others with their so-called inside-outside strategy. To be sure, if the Democrats ran as a socialist party, they would be routed at the polls. This is because people know full well who these people are and what they really represent. But people would come out in droves for a class-independent socialist candidate, supported by an elemental movement like the one we saw last summer, laying the foundations for a mass party with a real chance at winning. Not liberals masquerading as socialists, but genuine working class socialists. A bona fide workers party that took up all the issues that affect all workers on a class basis would be something completely different. A party that fights for jobs, healthcare, and education for everybody. A party that argued that all of this should be paid for by expropriating the Fortune 500, including the biggest companies on Wall Street and the giants in Silicon Valley. On a class basis, even many workers who voted for Trump could be won over to such a program. Take the question of fracking and fossil fuels generally as an example. Many workers in this industry may worry about its environmental effects, but for them, it's the only way they can pay the rent or mortgage, put food on the table, and send their kids to school. When Biden bluntly stated that he'd, quote, get rid of fossil fuels, the only thing these workers heard was, you're going to be out of a job again, the Rust Belt is going to be betrayed yet again by the Democrats. Furthermore, there's a strong libertarian tradition in this country, and not only in the modern extreme right-wing sense. Going back to the contradictory period of the first American Revolution, there's a strong tradition of individualism, of exalting personal liberty above all else, and deep illusions in the concept of freedom in the abstract. There's widespread distrust of the government, and for good reason. This is cynically played on by conspiracy theorists, by rival powers, and of course, by the president himself. Instead of offering a rational explanation for why people should wear masks and practice social distancing, there's been a confusing mess of mixed messages. Democratic governors have decreed cold and impersonal mandates from above as ordinary workers' bank accounts have been drained. Now, a workers' party would take a very different approach. It wouldn't frame things in black and white terms of your job or your health forcing people to choose between those two very important things. A workers' party would protect people's health while guaranteeing quality jobs for all and a truly living wage, whether you're actively working or not. It would ban evictions, provide universal health care, child care, education, and a little thing called dignity. The potential for a party such as this is not 
to be denied. I mean, I think it's very clear that a party that seriously was was offering those things would get a lot of support. Now, to be fair, if there had been a viable independent socialist candidate in this election, there's no telling what the result would have been. They may or may not have won this time around, but in a close three-way race, they may well have. Even if they didn't win, it sure couldn't hurt to have a massive movement prepared to fight in the streets and the workplaces against Trump or Biden and to lay the groundwork for a successful challenge in 2024 and beyond. Now, the current impasse is not the result the serious strategists of Capital wanted. A blowout victory for Biden would have suited their interests best. A survey of CEOs conducted by the Yale School of Management in late September found that 77% of them planned to vote for Biden and that over 60% predicted he would win. Instability is bad for business and Trump is the definition of instability. Now, the Financial Times, which is not a communist rag by any means, understands the implications of this kind of uncertainty, the constant undermining of the legitimacy of the entire system. As they wrote in an editorial today, America faces two dangers, one immediate, the other structural. The first is that the judiciary may well get involved in deciding the outcome. The second danger is to the legitimacy of the entire system. If Mr. Trump wins the Electoral College, it'll be the second time he has done so with a minority of the vote and the third time a Republican has done so this century. Now, a lot of questions remain to be resolved and things are changing by the hour. It may take several more days or just several more hours before a winner is decisively declared. But one thing is certain, there's never been a greater need for Marxist analysis and a Marxist organization. So we'd like to invite you to join the comrades of the U.S. section of the IMT on the weekend of November 14th and 15th for the largest event we've ever organized. We'll be meeting on Zoom and we have a fantastic lineup of topics and speakers. For starters, we're going to be talking about the elections. We'll be deepening our analysis and we'll see where things are at in a few days. But we'll also be discussing the George Floyd movement with comrades from Minneapolis as well as outlining a socialist approach to fighting climate crisis. We'll look at how revolutionary socialism can revive the labor movement, and we'll hear from a comrade and activist in the Niuna Menos movement against femicides in Mexico. Finally, we'll hear from comrades around the world about the conditions they're working in to build the IMT. The link to register for the event is posted in the, this video's description and in the chat, and we hope you'll join us. Now, here's an important angle to consider. By presenting the results as a fraud, Trump may actually be in a stronger position out of power than in it. He would be even less constrained by the need for decorum or concerned for institutional integrity than he is as president. If Biden wins, he's going to inherit multiple crises and he'll have limited tools to confront them, not to mention a virulent far-right opposition. So if Trump can muddy the transfer of power, and let's not forget, win or lose, Trump's going to be the president until January, until January 20th. Uh, if he can paint himself as a victim of liberal tyranny, his base is going to be fired up and he will live to fight another day, potentially even running for another term in 2024. Now, millions of people are exhausted by the Trump presidency, by the economic roller coaster, by the stress and strain of the pandemic. They want to return to normalcy. But this is the norm under capitalism. Only in a handful of countries for a handful of years was relative peace and stability something you could expect. 
that epoch is finished. So this isn't so much a new normal, but the real fundamental normal under capitalism. By its very nature, it's a system of war, crisis, and instability. Now, after the last few years, a lot of people sincerely want reconciliation, but the only reconciliation possible is that between the workers, uniting in struggle against our common enemies. Reconciliation between the classes is impossible in a society divided between exploiters and exploited. Now, as Marxists, we have no illusions in the farce of bourgeois democracy, but these elections do mark a new point of inflection in the crisis of capitalism, the class struggle, and the contradictory development of class consciousness. Presidential and other elections can provide a useful snapshot of the mood in society at a given moment, but they can't offer a solution to the fundamental problems faced by the workers and youth. Now, though it won't be an automatic or linear process, eventually the despair, unfocused anger, and uncertainty will be cut across by the class struggle. Nature despises a vacuum, and the laws of social gravity will eventually assert themselves. So the conclusion we have to draw is that there is no way out of the crisis of capitalism within the capitalist system itself. It's as simple as that. It's not an easy truth to swallow, but that's the reality. There's no solution within the limits of its social and economic relations, within its political parties, within its legal framework, or within its state and institutional structures. We've said it before, and we'll say it a million times more if necessary. What the American working class needs is a mass political party of its own on a class independent basis, armed with a revolutionary socialist program that transcends the limits of capitalism. Only the coming to power of a workers' government can lay the foundations for ending the uncertainty and instability that's inherent in a system based on the pursuit of profits. This idea has to be clearly, patiently, and persistently raised in the movement. It's the fulcrum around which our many seemingly separate struggles can be linked together into one mighty struggle against capitalism. The period we're living in is more similar to the pre-revolutionary 1750s or 1850s than to the 1950s. The relative stability of the post-war period is dead and buried, and the social contradictions are all pushing in the direction of a new revolution in our lifetime. This is the perspective we must prepare for. We all know that Joe Biden is not a socialist, and Trump is most definitely not a socialist. But we in the IMT are socialists. We're revolutionary socialists and Marxists, and we have absolute confidence that the class issues will eventually come to the fore and that the working class can and will change society. So if you're not yet a member of the IMT, now is the time to get in touch with us. Now is the time to join the struggle for the socialist revolution and the socialist world.